Darren, thank you for your, uh, your kind words. And uh, Steve, thank you for, uh, for having me. It is a joy for me to be here. Uh, and thank you for coming out to a conference on government on a Friday night, a nice, rainy, beautiful Friday night. Uh, I'm thankful that you're all here. This is exactly the session that I did uh, at Shepherd's Conference. So I see some of you I recognize from there. Um, so, but you don't remember it. You, re- you really don't. Uh, I'm sorry for wearing a tie also. Um, I'm coming from another meeting. And, you know, I looked on YouTube and you guys were wearing ties on, when I saw the videos up li- online. But, so I don't know what happened. Uh, however, th- this is... And, and Darren saw it, so he can vouch for this. This is a, a Donald Trump tie. So I don't know where the hat went. It's in the bag there. There's a Trump hat, but I have the Trump tie. But it was purchased before he was a politician. It predates that. And he made nice ties, okay? Back off. Um, yeah, tonight, uh, my goal is to talk about Christian nationalism. And uh, I hope that it's uh, an encouraging uh, talk to you. Because the title, uh, Christian nationalism, is a term that gets often misused, uh, misapplied. Um, and so everybody always says, you need, in order to talk about Christian nationalism, you need to define Christian nationalism. And so I want to do that tonight. Uh, I borrowed the definition from NPR, uh, National Public Radio. Does that exist in Bakersfield? Okay. Uh, okay, so according to NPR, you're a Christian nationalist if you voted for Trump. I'm making up the definition, but that's what they would say, totally. Uh, they might add to it, especially if you think abortion should be illegal, then you're totally a Christian nationalist. Uh, if you think drag shows are bad for kids, Christian nationalist, um, definitely. Uh, on, on the other perspective, there's a, uh, a conservative political author, uh, Yoram Hasnoy, uh, who um, actually has a very helpful definition of it. He breaks it down this way. He defines nationalism as a belief that nations are defined by shared culture and history and that nations should put their own interests above others. Okay, so that's a nationalism part of the definition, that there is such a thing as nations that have shared culture. And for him in his writing, uh, ethnicity is kind of prominent. And uh, ethnicity in his writing just means a shared language and culture and kind of system of beliefs and cultural story. So nationalism is that those exist and that a nation should, by intentionality, put its own interest above the interest of the nations around it. That's nationalism. And then he would say, you add Christian to it, um, to that term, uh, that just defines a country that has their shared identity and culture flowing out of the Anglo-Protestant tradition. So kind of an English uh, common law influence, Magna Carta kind of thing, uh, personal freedom, somewhat democratic leaning. He refers to that as the Anglo-Protestant tradition, and that would elevate that form of nationalism apart from other forms of nationalism. And he, of course, would argue that that kind of nationalism is better than other forms of nationalism because it produces a common sense of human flourishing and uh, just freedoms in the world. Uh, but for, for Yoram Hasnoy, that, that phrase is more descriptive than prescriptive. He's not, when he calls people Christian nationalists, he's not saying they should be that way or that it's good to be that way. He's more describing Western civilization. But like in the, in the secular world, in the political theory world, that's probably the most accepted academic definition of Christian nationalism. Uh, but he notes that, and he rightly notes, that in our world today, 
the phrase Christian nationalism is attached to all kinds of things, many of which are good, but some of which are bad. And it's done intentionally that way to get you to move away from the good things and embrace the bad things. And so, for example, I mentioned earlier, jokingly, the NPR would say, if you voted for Trump or you're against abortion, that's Christian nationalism. And you, as somebody who likely voted for Trump and who's against abortion, would be like, okay. And they follow it with, you know, you believe in white supremacy and segregation and stoning homosexuals to death. And you're like, "Mm, maybe I should have got off the train a few stops ago. And they use that in order to lure you away or try to make a fence away from conservative political ideology. And so I tell you that that's the context when somebody like Al Mohler comes on and Al Mohler proudly describes himself as a Christian nationalist. So he takes the label Christian nationalist and uh, uh, if he wasn't a Southern Baptist, maybe he would have got it tattooed on him. I mean, he is fine with the concept of a Christian nationalist. He embraces it and he does so for a few reasons. Um, I've listened to him talk a lot about this. Uh, for Mohler, he embraces the term Christian nationalist for a couple of reasons. One, he has the idea that if NPR means something as an insult, he'll just go ahead and take it. Uh, he doesn't like running from the phrases that liberals use to slur conservatives, and so he embraces it. But beyond that, Mueller also says that he's a nationalist. He believes that nations should elevate their own desires and what's best for them over the nations around them, and that Christianity has had a unique influence in our nation's past. And so he is fully on board accepting the label of a Christian nationalist, uh, and he sees that kind of a continuity with our nation's past and basically advocating for America first uh, kind of politics, which is, is, is fine and well, and probably the mainstream through American history of political thought, although probably less so now. But that is not what most Christians mean by Christian nationalism. Like at a, at a conference like this, if some of you were to say you're a Christian nationalist or tell your friends that you're a Christian nationalist or wear a t-shirt that says you're a Christian nationalist, I've seen a few of them already, uh, or have a beard that advertises that you're a Christian nationalist. Man, those Christian nationalist beards. Uh, I joke. It's not everybody with the big beard is a Christian nationalist, but like 98% of them. <laughs> it's not the Al Mohler kind of Christian nationalism you're talking about. Like it's not the, it's not the yeah, there's such a thing as nations and ours as a Christian influence. Uh, inside of the Christian world, uh, the definition of Christian nationalism becomes more distinct. And so there's some positive and negative definitions. Let me borrow the definition from uh, Paul Miller. Uh, he wrote a book called The Religion of American Greatness. And I have, uh, I have many problems with the book. I think there's a lot that's good in the book, but I have many problems with it as well. So me using this definition is not me embracing the whole book. I actually do know Paul, and he's a really cool guy, and he drives a big Harley, and uh, I coach his son in soccer, and I have a great relationship with him. So anything I say critical about it, it's not, it's not personal. Um, but I do have some, some issues with his book. But I like his definition of Christian nationalism just because it is descriptive here. The belief that there's something identifiable as an American nation distinct from other nations, that American nationhood is and should remain defined by Christianity or Christian cultural norms, and that the American people and their government should actively work to defend, sustain, and cultivate Americans' Christian culture, heritage, and values. So you can see it's a very long definition, too long for a dictionary. That would not, that would not pass the editor in a dictionary. But there's a lot of words doing a lot of work in there. For example, the, and their government is snuck in there. Uh, and it, the government is given an active role, should actively work to defend is a defensive posture, which is you know normally working is active and defensive is 
uh, more passive, but Americans, Christian culture, heritage, and values. That's his definition. He writes in his book that the national argument boils down to an assertion that ideology cannot survive if disconnected from the non-ideological components of culture. What he means by that is that if America, uh, that Christian nationalism is the belief that if American government loses its distinctly Christian flavor, that our nation will cease to exist as a nation, is his argument. He will argue against that. He goes on to critique Christian nationalism. So from the other side of the same argument is uh, Stephen Wolf. Um, Stephen Wolf, who... I brought the book for show and tell. Uh, would you raise your hand if you've read this book? That would just help me gauge. Is that zero people? Hello. <laughs> All right. Well, this is a, um, a widely referenced book on Christian nationalism. Uh, and it is, you know, it's made a pretty profound impact in American Christian culture in the last few years. I think it's Canon Press, actually. Um, yeah, Canon, Moscow, Idaho, Canon Press. Uh, and it's had an outsized impact on, um, on lots of churches uh, as far as his argument for Christian nationalism. And so when I say tonight that I'm arguing against Christian nationalism, which you saw my title slide was the case against Christian nationalism. What I mean by that is I'm, I'm arguing against this form of Christian nationalism, uh, which I think is, even, is more narrow even than um, Paul Miller. So his form of Christian nationalism is... Uh, Christian nationalism is the totality of national action consisting of civil laws and social customs conducted by a Christian nation as a Christian nation in order to procure for itself both earthly and heavenly good in Christ. Now, I would also have some quibbles with that definition. There's some circular words in here. Uh, some circular language in here. I remember in middle school, uh, my middle school English teacher, Mrs. Blue was her name. And Mrs. Blue said, if you're defining something, you can't use the thing in its definition. Like if you're defining pizza, you can't say it's a round thing that is a pizza. That doesn't work. And a little bit of that is happening here with his definition of Christian nationalism. You see it's a Christian nation. Well, that's kind of what we're talking about here. But it's my... uh, Critique tonight is targeted at this form, not the Al, Al Mohler form. So Al Mohler says he's a Christian nationalist, whatever, may his tribe increase. I kind of don't care. But I do care more about this, and I want to kind of give you guys a way to defend yourself against this kind of Christian nationalism. Uh, my concerns with Stephen Wolf's approach to Christian nationalism, which again is taking off in the church at large, uh, is fourfold. I have uh, four critiques of his approach to Christian nationalism. So you're taking notes, you could write. Uh, these down to get the substance of what I'm talking about tonight. My first objection with Wolf's former Christian nationalism is it idealizes the past. It idealizes the past. Wolf argues that uh, the goal of Christian nationalism is to recover a Christian heritage in a nation. It's this idea that the United States used to have this Christian past and that we have since lost and that it is the church's uh, calling the Christians calling individually and the church is calling corporately to regain that sense of Christian identity. And there's a simple way in which that's probably appealing to you. Uh, I saw uh, in the news, and by the news I mean Twitter, which is the same thing, uh, that, you know, Wonder Years, the TV show, came out 40 years ago today. Um, or like yesterday. Uh, 40 years ago. Uh, that's crazy. 1984. Uh, it was set, um, of course, 20 years before that, which means, here's my math, if Wonder Years came out today, it would be set in 2004. 
that should give you a little bit of a midlife crisis. Uh, if you were born in 2004, that should give you a midlife crisis right there. You should have it right now and get over it. There's a sense in which you understand that like our country has changed significantly. There's no denying that. Every generation says, oh, our country is you know, going to hell in a handbasket. Every generation says that. Uh, we're sliding down the tubes. This is the worst it's ever been. And you understand that. But there's also some pretty objective changes in our culture in the last 20 years uh, that are different just in the, you know, the timeline of human history, uh, the way nations go in cycles. You see a lot of changes in the realm of marriage and uh, the, the, the decline of borders, the decline of marriage, the decline of law and order in so many ways that it's hard to argue that there have been things in our nation um, that have made it better. It seems likely that a lot of things from income to uh, law and order have declined. Um, and so there's a certain way that Stephen Wolf's argument that we should recover our Christian past resonates with you. Uh, you kind of like the wonder years, uh, you know, the kids riding their bikes in the street and bonfires in their front yard and holding hands with their girlfriend when they're in middle school, except not my kids, not allowed, not allowed. That You kind of romanticize the past a little bit. Um, so it's worth asking yourself, at what period of America's history was it rightly defined as a Christian nation? Was there an era in American history where you would look at the, the country and say, yeah, this is a Christian nation right here. This is what we're talking about right here. And then a little thought exercise for you is to find that time period in your own minds and go back and read Christians that you love and respect that were alive during that time and see what they said about that time period. Uh, you know, Al Mohler points at the 19, 1964, 1962, sorry, is where Mohler says that's where everything went wrong. Before 1962, the Democrats and the Republicans were in lockstep on social issues. There wasn't a, a, a spit's worth of difference between them. That's the phrase he always, always uses. Uh, and then things diverged after there. And, he, you know, he's not wrong. Again, LGBTQ movement, uh, no-fault divorce, all that has fundamentally changed our society. But if you go back to, who's a Christian in the early 1960s? It's writing, like Martin Lloyd-Jones. You know, what did he say about the American culture of the 50s and 60s? Oh, he hated it. He thought it was entertainment-driven, materialistic. He couldn't believe how many so-called Christians would go to the theater on Saturday nights, and uh, they were defiling the Lord's Day on Sunday morning. I mean, you're, you're reading his writing uh, on that time period, and it is not like, oh, that's a Christian nation. It's like, oh my goodness, these guys are a bunch of materialistic heathens. Um, or you go back earlier. You know, the, and you don't even need to go down the racial road of segregation and Jim Crow laws and all, all of that around that time period, uh, because, of course, that should be in the forefront of your mind as well. You go back to the 1800s. You know, is that it? Is that when the U.S. was firing on all cylinders as a Christian nation? Well, not really. You're, you're dealing with slavery and so much else. But you got Spurgeon there. You know, Spurgeon said of the American culture in his lifetime, quote, that he called it, quote, shameful and abominable. Uh, and he said that if... <laughs> If God didn't punish the United States with a bloody war, then the God of the Bible doesn't exist. That's a paraphrase of Spurgeon's argument about how awful the American culture was. In a different work, he called America's culture, quote, abhorrent and bloodthirsty. Now, what's interesting to me is that Spurgeon never excused England's role in the slave trade. In fact, he said, quote, slavery would not have been in the U.S. had it not been carried there from Manchester and Liverpool. Spurgeon identified slavery as wrong and England's role in it as wrong. Of course he did. 
Um, but he also recognized that the United States had a distinct embrace of it that poisoned our culture, and he thought it was worthy of God's judgment. And I, I tell you all that not because I'm like, you know, New York Times 1619 project or anything. I'm not trying to, you know, uh, put down our country's past. There's been so much virtue in it and so much good that has come out of it. But just to have a sober realization that it's going to be hard to argue that there's a time period in our country's past where it's personified as a Christian nation that we're trying to get back to. We have a way of idealizing the past. You can go back to our country's founding even. Was our country intentionally and deliberately founded as a Christian nation? Not really. I mean, there was debates in the founding about the role of religion in public society, about the role of the government and church separation. Certainly, they viewed a a closer relationship between the government and the church than we have now. But it wasn't out of this idea that we would be founded in some sense as uh, anything that they would identify as a Christian nation. I mean, you can go to the Constitution, and the Constitution has the religious test clause in it, that you can't uh, have somebody's religion or religious position as a uh, requisite for holding a federal office. That's not the kind of thing you would put in the Constitution if you were arguing for a Christian nation. Uh, it just wouldn't, wouldn't make sense there. The reality is when you look at our country's history, we chose e pluribus unum over in Christ alone. You know, we chose out of, out of many we'll make one people, uh, not... Uh, that our identity is rooted in Christ. And again, my point is not that things are fine in the world now, just that it's going to be very hard to define a period of time in America's history where we would identified as a Christian nation where all is well. And of course, every generation, because of that, hinges so much hope on the next election. Um, the ne- I'll tell you what, the next election this year, it's the most important election ever. <laughs> I'm so glad you're laughing. If people say that every election... Uh, when I moved to Washington, D.C., it was right uh, around the time President Obama was elected the first time, and I was told that repeatedly. You know, if he wins, this is just, oh, it's, you know, it's over. And then his reelection, oh, he had four years. If he gets four more years, our country is toast. And guess what? In a way, we're, we're still here. Um, and this is not new uh, with, with Trump, and it's not new with the Bushes. You can go back to George Washington, everybody was happy when George Washington was elected, and when he was reelected, high fives in the street, celebration, everything was good. But the next election, you had people foretelling the doom of human society. You know, if Jefferson won, that Francophile Jefferson, if he won, we may as well just become, you know, slaves of France. I mean, that was certainly the idea. Religious freedom, uh, you know, toast, uh, of course, if Jefferson wins, and you know, and on the other side, you had people thinking if Adams wins, like he's just so government-minded that, you know, all sense of, of freedom and individual rights would be subsumed by the government. I mean, those were the elections when our country, those were the conversations when our country started that Christians had. Um, there were riots in the street. People died. Um, this, this kind of stuff is, is, not, is not new. And so it's very easy to idolize the past. By the way, uh, Adams won. And the country survived. And then Jefferson won. And the country, we have a monument for him and everything in D.C. It's very nice. You could, <laughs> should come see it. Um, all right, so first, a, a difficulty with Christian nationalism is it idealizes the past. Second, addition, a difficulty with Christian nationalism is that it impossibilizes the future. What's that you say? I mean, it impossibilizes the present. What's that you say? Impossibilizes is not a word? How dare you? Uh, it works in my outline, so you have to embrace it. 
Uh, so Wolf in, in this book says, the problem with um, our country now is not that Christian nationalist ideas are bad, but that we haven't put them into practice with enough effort. So Wolf's argument here is that through democracy, we need to reclaim our country as a Christian nation. And that's a pretty good definition of Christian nationalism. I think that if, if only the church would get their act together, we could go back to being a Christian nation. There's a, a big church uh, not far from where I, I pastor. Uh, it used to be a Calvary chapel, and it's got very politically minded recently. And last election, a bunch of people sent me a, pa- a sermon from their pastor with the, like, the implication I should preach more like this. And that's always encouraging. You want to encourage your pastor, send him somebody else's sermon. You're like... Especially if it's like a passage that he just preached. Steve, I think you're in the Sermon on the Mount or something. What are you in right now? Sermon on the Mount. Yeah, send him one of my Sermon on the Mount sermons and tell him, like, this just moves my heart in such a profound way. (laughs) So I get these messages from this guy on politics, and he's like clapping and being like, if the church doesn't wake up and the church doesn't get out the vote, then we're all going down, you know? And he talks about how the liberal churches, those liberal churches, they bring out buses and they get everybody to the voting booth. And so we got to get everybody out and go to the voting booth. You know, that's, that's kind of the, the spiel. And, uh, you know, it, there's a certain amount of appeal to that, right? Uh, you think, yeah, that's right, because if only I voted harder, then we would win. Um, <laughs> But you recognize that ultimately, at the end of the day, it is pretty much a numbers game. Like, we live in a democracy, and so the most people to vote, it's their side that wins. Uh, unfortunately, that's the way democracy generally works. Insert your jokes about the last election here, if you would like to. Um, but it really is a numbers game. And Christianity is a narrow path. It's a narrow path. So... If it comes down to just as simple as if more people voted, you're not gonna you're not gonna win. And I noticed that this is from Canon Press. Um, I mentioned earlier Moscow, Idaho. You know, a lot of that's all in on the Christian nationalism front, but they can't they can't take over the city council in Moscow, Idaho. You know, I mean, seriously, the city council they can't take over. Uh, my church in a, you know we're in the D.C. area. We had a school board election that was pretty important in 2014 or so. And my church got all in on one candidate for the school board. Because I'm thinking, you know, Congress is above our pay grade. Uh, a guy who ran for Senate, uh, Republican nominee for Senate, was a member of our congregation. And, you know, but we're, he's going to get destroyed. And he did. He was a godly man with integrity, but didn't win the election. But a school board member, like, that we can handle. That's our neighborhood. And we, like, got all in. We had her uh, for a Q&A at church. And she's Roman Catholic, but... You know, so it was after church, like we closed the benediction and then we brought her up. Everybody's still there and, and talked to her. And like, I'm getting all, it's for the children. Like I'm all in uh, and pushing hard for this. And every Christian I know voted for her and she got demolished, <laughs> destroyed. Like, man, we did everything, everything. And she just got obliterated and now there's no gender distinction bathrooms in our school district and uh, I mean seriously everything everything fell apart after that and you know it reminded me like it is simply a numbers game you know you can care more about politics if you want and, and of course Wolf deals with that and he just says you know it's it takes a smaller amount of people to become the majority than you might imagine. You know, like in a low turnout year, whoever is motivating their base better. But ultimately, it still impossibilizes the present. I'm going to talk more about this tomorrow. But when you make politics the church's agenda, it necessitates compromise. Of course it does. There's a reason it's liberal churches that have the buses to go vote and not conservative churches. Because if you view a political end, you have to co- you know, co-labor with people that are outside your statement of faith. 
You just have to. You're trying to build a majority, and you're not a majority, so you need to partner with people to make a majority, which means you're going to have the Catholic, and you're going to have the Mormon, and you're going to have the Muslim, and you're going to have to all lock arms together for a certain purpose, and that tends towards liberalism. It just does. Um, So it impossibilizes the present. If you take the Benedict Auction, I don't know if any of you read the Benedict Auction, but if you take the Benedict Auction, you will end up living with the Benedictine monks. That's the way it works. Um, and uh, there's a certain sense that for law issues in society, that's okay. You know, if gay marriage is on the ballot. Uh, I know in California when gay marriage was on the ballot, not that elections matter because gay marriage got voted down, but somehow still happened. Uh, but when that happened, you remember, it was the Mormon church funded that election practically. Uh, just dumped all kinds of money in it, and churches were mobilized. And in LA, African American churches were mobilized, and that was the year that President Obama won. And yet, gay marriage was destroyed. I mean, so many people voted for Obama and against gay marriage, and it's inconceivable now. But that was bankrolled by churches that you would likely have nothing to do with, and the Mormons, for goodness' sake. Um, but that's just for law issues. That's fine, but not for gospel issues. Not for gospel issues. Uh, for gospel issues, you, of course, understand it's a remnant theology. Narrow is the way to salvation. There are a few that finds it. Uh, in this book, book, Wolf argues, like, the easiest place to start is with Sabbath laws. Uh, like, they should return Sabbath laws to the books. That's the easiest way to regain our Christian heritage. Close things, like Chick-fil-A it, you know? Close things on, close things on Sunday. Um, and that'll build your majority. And as a dispensationalist, like, I get the point, but I'm still like, eh. Kind of thought the Sabbath was Saturday. I don't know. Uh, and he says, you know, there's exception clauses. You, of course, would let you wouldn't make people apply, uh, uh, abide by the Sabbath laws if it, you know, violated their conscience because you're not trying to do forced conversions. I'm like, man, I got off at the first. The first stop on your train was the Sabbath laws, and I felt like I had to get off. That's not going to be a good way to build a majority for kind of Christian laws. It's just not really possible. And he argues that you would make it possible by narrowing the. Uh, ethnic identity of a nation. In fact, he argues that any nation properly defined has only one ethnicity to it. And I'll talk more about that that later. Um, But he says, and I quote, no nation properly speaking is comprised of two or more ethnicities. Um, But that's just not really the way the United States is. I'll talk more about that under my fourth point. And then number three, my third objection to this, is that it institutionalizes the church. It makes the church a subsidiary of government. He argues very clearly that in his view of Christian nationalism, the government should have the ability to rebuke slothful ministers, like your, if your pastor's being lazy and not studying, straight to jail, or maybe just a fine, I don't know, maybe a fine, or a rebuke, you know. Uh, the church should have authority over statements of faith uh, to keep heresy from being taught and then propagated in the church. Um, and, and he has other examples as well. But that makes the church subsidiary to government. It goes radically against um, the kind of political theology that's often been taught and practiced by evangelicals and Baptists throughout the post-Reformation world. Um, even in Catholicism, you know, the Catholic Church is a doctrine of two swords. Uh, it's an it's a official Catholic doctrine. Um, and the Catholic doctrine of two swords, if you're not familiar with it, teaches that there are two kingdoms in the world, the kingdom of, of, of God, which he reigns over souls, and then the kingdom of, of governments. Um, and the governments, you know, reign over the world. And, and the Catholic doctrine, the government, of course, funds the churches. Um, but what makes the Catholic doctrine of two swords different than Protestant theology is in Catholicism, you have one person over both. 
And that's often the symbol of like the eagle with two swords. A lot of the European nations have that symbol on their flag, an eagle with two swords in his talon or something like that. And that's just indicating that one person oversees both the church and the state. Well, Protestants, of course, reject that. I mean, not Henry. The Anglicans don't reject that. They're fine with that as long as it's their king who's, who's over both. But Protestants, properly speaking, reject that doctrine. It's not that we reject the two-kingdom theology of it. We object to the one person overseeing both. We have a separation between the church and the government. And, of course, we get that from Jesus saying, Render unto Caesar. What is Caesar and to God's? What is God's? We recognize there's two spheres. Taxes are set by government, not by the church. Um, certain laws, you know, government is run by the government, not by the, by the church. It's the Puritan tradition for sure that says there's two kingdoms, but they need to be held by two different people. That's where the doctrine of the separation of church and state comes from. And the Puritan understanding of separation of church and state is very different than the American understanding of it. You know, today separation of church and state means like in God we trust probably shouldn't be on our coins is kind of what Americans mean by that today. In the Puritan world, it meant that the church identified the heretics and the government killed them. That's kind of how, how, how they rolled. Um, so it was not that the government identified the heretics, which seems to be the form of Christian nationalism. That seems to me, what Wolf is arguing for seems to me to go even against the Puritan understanding of the separation of church and state. I mean, like Owen was big on that. Like, I'll show you who the heretics are and the government needs to deal with them. And it's hard to read, like, you know, Calvin with Servetus and that kind of stuff without understanding that's the world they're dealing in. Like, the, the, their idea of separation of church and state was that it was the church's job to tell the government who to kill. I'm not even exaggerating. Like, the Salem witch trials fall into that category. You read about, you know, Samuel Willard. This is a tangent, and it's for free. But Samuel Willard is one of my favorite. He's the last American Puritan, an incredible author, incredible theologian. But he had a front row seat in the Salem witch trials because the judge is calling him as the local minister and saying, come testify. Is there, does the Bible talk about witches, and what are we supposed to do with them? And, and what do you do if you're a local pastor? It's not going to happen in Bakersfield, right? The mayor's not going to call your pastor and say, can you come testify for us about what we should do with people with these kind of, uh, kind of laws? But in their mind, that was a separation of church and state. The pastors just told the government what the Bible said and let the government act on it. Um, that's not the way the Puritans went uh, as they grew up. That's not the way our own country went, and it's not the Baptist tradition which sees those two kingdoms as somewhat distinct. And I'll talk about those tomorrow afternoon. Um, so uh, Sam, uh, Stephen Wolf gives the syllogism. He says that the civil government ought to direct its people to the true religion. Christianity is the true religion. Therefore, the civil government ought to direct people to, that, to Christianity, to uh, the true religion. So look what's doing the work here uh, in his syllogism. What's doing the work is that the, the offensive mode of government, that civil government should direct, which is an active form of people, towards Christianity. Um, and so I think the classic two-kingdom view uh, of political theory is an acceptable response to his case for Christian nationalism, and I'll go into that in our final session tomorrow. Uh, Stephen Wolf also argues this. Government has always been intended or was always intended to order matters to his complete good, which includes heavenly life. So that's the argument. And tomorrow morning in our first session, I'll... I'll um, talk about why that I disagree with that statement. The government is not designed by God to order everything in mankind towards the complete good, including heavenly life. I'm going to make the argument tomorrow morning from Genesis 9, the government has a restraining role, not an active role. Uh, and then my fourth objection is that his former Christian nationalism can idolize. Did I pass it? Mm -hmm. 
Uh, yes. Uh, his, um, that it idolizes ethnicity. His form of Christian nationalism idolizes ethnicity. Then I want to be careful with my words here because he's, he is pretty careful to not bring race into the discussion. He objects to the idea that, this, that anything he says is racist, of course. Um, and he would agree with me that there is only one race, that race is a, you know, a biological fiction. There really is no uh, biological defensible concept of, of race. Um, but the Bible uses the word ethnos for ethnicity, uh, which speaks of different cultures and languages and what we would refer to as ethnic identity. So he is talking about that. Um, nevertheless, he, he, he makes, I would say, he makes an idol out of race. He gets very weird when he talks about interracial marriages or interethnic marriages. Uh, he even develops another category for, like, you would say that homosexual marriage is not a true marriage at all because it's not marriage. And then there's marriages that aren't wise, of course, that people aren't, aren't compatible, and there's marriages where everybody's a good fit. And he kind of seems to argue that, that an interracial marriage would fit in that middle category. Like, it's still technically a marriage, but it just wouldn't be wise. Um, and he talks about, you know, it's be so hard for kids in that kind of marriage to grow up not having an ethnic identity, not knowing who their people are kind of thing. Uh, he has a weird section where he talks about uh, should... Because the argument would be here, okay, if our country has a Christian ethnic heritage, should we allow immigration from other Christian nations to increase the number of Christians and strengthen the ethnic identity? And he argues against that as well. I think that was my next slide. An important question is whether uh, that you can, a Christian nation could allow the immigration of fellow Christians from foreign lands, and I argue they can. He does more than argue they can. He argues definitely that they, they should as an attempt to recover our own ethnic heritage, which is distinct from from Christianity. Um, so I would say all of this is viewing uh, as a wrong view of our past. As I mentioned, the United States did, was not designed, it wasn't founded with one ethnic identity. It was founded with people from, you know, immigrants from, from the Netherlands, immigrants from France and from Spain and from England. Uh, and as the U.S. expanded, it, it intentionally adopted even more of that. I'm from Albuquerque, New Mexico. You know, Santa Fe is older than Plymouth Rock, for goodness sakes. <laughs> You know, our American history books start with Plymouth Rock. Bleh. <laughs> Probably less so in California, you know. When my kids were in California, they were making little missions out of paper mache. I don't know if that's an L.A. County school thing or if that's all over the place. But, you know, at least they're, like, starting in the right spot. Um, but that was, that's America's past. You know, you even do, like, practical levels. Like, you get to Hawaii and you take out Hawaii, which has its, you know, incorporate that into our country, which has its own ethnic identity. And, you know, he would argue that Hawaii has one ethnic identity, which shows that it's truly its own nation. But it ain't anymore. Like, it's, there's a star on the flag and everything for it. Like, it's, it's part of us now. Um, is it not rightly part of us? Uh, how do you even navigate those kind of complexities? The argument gets very weird very fast. I understand he's not talking about race, but, but, but about ethnicity, um, but his concept of Christian nationalism really only functions if a nation has only one ethnic identity, and that is just not the way the United States was founded. Nor is it the design of the New Testament to teach churches how to make an ethnically pure nation. When you look at the Great Commission, it's doing something very different, isn't it? You're going into all the nations to preach the gospel. And that word nations in Matthew 28 is the word ethnos. You're going to all the people groups, all the ethnicities of the world to make disciples, not to make ethnically distinct nations, but the very idea in Matthew 28 is the gospel transcends those national boundaries. It's so important to your own identity, I think, as a believer, that you have more in common with 
with a Christian from China than you do with a non-Christian who lives next door to you. Um, and I think maybe Stephen Wolf would even agree with that. But once you press it a little bit, a few steps down the road, it's very hard to understand how his concept of an ethnic identity inside of a nation makes sense uh, when you have a view of brotherhood and sisterhood in Christ across borders. Moreover, in the New Testament, the means of transformation of a nation uh, is the ordinary means of grace. It's the preaching of the word, baptism, uh, communion, church discipline, corporate prayer. It's the church services. Like That's how believers are built into maturity, um, not through the role of government. Uh, and so you just have to understand that God has called believers to go into all the world preaching the gospel, making disciples, um, not putting their own nation before the love of other nations. Now, I recognize in a nationalistic concept in politics, you want a government that is defending its own people first, absolutely, but you recognize that Christians at the very least have competing tensions in that. I have a whole tangent in here, but I, I'm running out of time, but I'll just summarize it briefly. Uh, he argues that um, you want to have an ordered love, an argument that you, you know, and he rightly understands that, listen, you're supposed to love your neighbor, you're supposed to love your enemy, you're supposed to love your kids. There's an order to that. If your enemy is attacking your neighbor, you defend your neighbor. That's loving to him. You love your neighbor more or differently or higher in the pecking order than your enemy. You love your own family higher in the pecking order than you love your neighbor. I mean, I think we get all that. But when you take that to the political theory, it falls down uh, pretty quick. Because in the New Testament, as well as the old, believers are called to love their enemies. Um, And often that command specifically applies to other ethnicities in the land. Like Exodus 23, you're supposed to love your enemy's ox. Um, you know, your enemy is like always mean to you. His ox wanders away and you see it. Exodus 23 says, you got to lead his ox back to him. Uh, you know, or let me Americanize it. Your neighbor who's next door and he turns his car sprinklers on your car and his dog is like doing stuff on your grass and you don't like that neighbor. Man, that neighbor bugs. You know the neighbor I'm talking about? I can tell you his name. <laughs> and then you're driving to work and you're like one minute late to work and there he's got a flat tire. And you're like, oh man, good. Providence wins. Like, no. Exodus 23 says, Noah, go ahead and help his ox. Leviticus 19 ties that kind of command to when you were strangers in Egypt. You know, so you recognize you're supposed to be demonstrating love um, to even your enemies, even your enemies of other nations. And that doesn't mean there should be no such thing as borders, that, that nations can't prioritize their own interests. Of course they can. But you recognize that at the very least there's a Christian tension in all of that. Uh, and then finally, much of Christian nationalism hinges on this idea that there is nations before the fall. And I'm going to argue tomorrow morning that's just not true. Government comes into existence um, with the, the flood. And uh, had there not been um, sin in the world, there wouldn't have been governments in the world. And Wolf argues, you know, he spends maybe 50 pages in this book arguing uh, the opposite of that. And so I think if you're spending, if you're trying so hard to put something into the garden, that would be a good sign it's an idol. If you're working hard to have something that would exist in the world without sin, uh, that's God. He would. Anything else you're trying to shoehorn there, like government or like ethnicity, is probably an indication that you're dealing with an idol in your own heart. So I would encourage you to reject this kind of Christian nationalism. 
because it is, I think, an attack on the gospel. It, it, it does botch theology. It misunderstands America's past. It makes impossible claims about the present, uh, and it has weird ethnic tensions to it as well. But all that to say, uh, before, I, before I close, you know, I'm jumping all over, over this book, which none of you have read. Uh, I'm surprised and encouraged simultaneously by that. Uh, but, I mean, he makes a contribution to political thought. And this isn't to say that I agree with all of his critics. Like, most of Stephen Wolf's critics are like the pro-mask, COVID lockdown kind of people that, you know, struggle to explain why drag, drag queen story hour is not okay. You know, they, they have a different view of political theory and government that is, is equally bad, if not, if not worse. It's unable to say why gay marriage is wrong. It's unable to say why the government should um, not allow people to change their genders and shouldn't allow drag queens to be paraded in front of kids and shouldn't allow pornography with fourth graders and the kind of books in school they allow. Like, all of that's bad, and Christians are called to expose that as bad and rebuke it and preach against it, of course. Um, and that doesn't make you a Christian nationalist. Like to say those kind of things are wrong and sinful and God will judge them does not make you a Christian nationalist. Well, I want to wrap up there. I have way more I could say. I'm through half of my slides, but uh, we have a thousand years in the kingdom. Steve taught me that joke tonight. We have a thousand years to go over the rest of it. Um, looking forward to that day. Let me close this in prayer before Steve comes back up. God, we are grateful for uh, your call to us to reach the world with the gospel. We want to make an impact in the world. We know nations rise and fall, governments come and go. Of course they do, all by your command. And we are a front row seat in our own country. And there's things we want of it. We want evil punished. Um, we want the government to restrain evil. So we do pray for our own nation. We pray for our own leaders. pray that you give them the courage to do what is right and to confront um, what is wrong. Uh, Lord, in the meantime, uh, as long as you delay. We pray that you use this in the world to reach the nations for the gospel. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.